Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, good morning, everyone. It is Tuesday, April 25th. Welcome to CNN This Morning. We're so glad you're with us. And we do begin, though, with news about this show. As you may have heard yesterday, CNN parted ways with anchor Don Lemon. In a statement, CNN CEO Chris Licht thanked Don for his contributions over the past 17 years, writing in part, Don will forever be a part of the CNN family. We wish him well and will be cheering him on in his future endeavors. Absolutely. Of course, Don was a big part of this show over the last six months. He was one of the first anchors on CNN to have me on his show. That's something I'll obviously never forget. I agree with Chris. We wish him the best. Yeah, we certainly do. Don was one of my first friends here at CNN. I'm so thankful to have worked alongside him and for his support for nearly 15 years here. And I wish him all good things ahead. Caitlin and I are really proud of this show. We are so proud of the dedicated team that works around the clock to bring you the news every morning. And our priority is you, the viewer. We're grateful you welcome us into your home each morning. Absolutely. And of course, this morning, we want to keep it with the, uh, the focus on the news and where that belongs. So let's get to it. CNN This Morning starts right now. This is CNN Breaking News. And we do begin with big news, big news, significant breaking news. President Biden has made it official, announcing he is running for re-election. Just moments ago, he released this announcement video. Watch. Freedom. Personal freedom is fundamental to who we are as Americans. There's nothing more important, nothing more sacred. That's been the work of my first term, to fight for our democracy. This shouldn't be a red or blue issue. To protect our rights, to make sure that everyone in this country is treated equally and that everyone is given a fair shot at making it. But you know, around the country, MAGA extremists are lining up to take on those bedrock freedoms. Cutting Social Security that you paid for your entire life while cutting taxes for the very wealthy, dictating what healthcare decisions women can make, banning books and telling people who they can love, all while making it more difficult for you to be able to vote. When I ran for president four years ago, I said we were in a battle for the soul of America, and we still are. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead, we have more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer. I know what I want the answer to be, and I think you do too. This is not a time to be complacent. That's why I'm running for re-election. Today is a very symbolic day for this announcement. It is the four-year anniversary of Biden entering the 2020 presidential race. So let's start out with Arlette Sines at the White House. 
We thought it was going to come today, probably. It came today, and he came out swinging against Republicans on abortion rights, book bans, Social Security, a number of things. Yeah, he did. Good morning, Poppy. President Biden uh, really is finally making it official, and he drew on those same themes from his 2020 campaign, as he said in that video that the battle for the soul of the country is not yet complete and voters should give him a second term in office. The president took aim at what he described as MAGA extremists uh, in the Republican Party. He used that imagery from January 6th, as well as protesters uh, following the Supreme Court's decision on abortion Uh, last summer. And additionally, in that video, you saw the president uh, highlight two men who could he could face off against in a general election matchup. That is former President Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has yet to formally enter the 2024 race. But ultimately, President Biden is hoping that Americans will look at his record on things like infrastructure and climate change and decide to give him a second term in office. Now, advisors that I spoke to said that just because he's launching this campaign today don't expect his day-to-day activities to really change. They believe that ultimately the president's ability to win over voters is to show that he is doing the job of being president. A bit later today, he will be speaking at a union conference as he looks to highlight his ties to labor groups. But one area where you will see the Biden team really ramp up their activity is when it comes to fundraising. They know that they need to mobilize those both those high-dollar donors as well as grassroots supporters. But as all of this campaign is coming into focus, coming into shape today, there are still significant challenges facing President Biden as he seeks a second term in office. His approval ratings are hovering in the low 40 percent. And additionally, the majority of Americans have said that they do not believe he should run for a second term, with many of those doubters saying that one of the chief issues is his age. But President Biden's allies and he believe that ultimately voters uh, will side with his record and choose him over the alternatives that they're seeing in the Republican Party. Okay, all that signs. Big day behind you at the White House. Thanks so much. Yeah, one of the biggest days that any White House has. For more on this, we want to bring in CNN contributor and staff writer at The New Yorker, Evan Osnos, who has written books about President Biden, including Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now. That, of course, Evan, was about the 2020 run that happened, as you know, four years ago today. April 25th, 2019 is when Biden made it official. And now you're seeing this again. What are you expecting from this run? Because it is going to look a lot different than 2020 did. Yeah, it's quite striking that he came out of the gate right away saying, look, in effect, this is about some big issues. You didn't hear him doing what presidents or uh, incumbents sometimes do, which is talk about some of the bills they've passed. What he did was go to the heart of the matter. In the end, this is about, as he said in 2020, to his mind, this is about a battle for the soul of the nation. He started this video on the word freedom, and he ended, importantly, on the idea that this is a project that remains unfinished. I think that's the theme that's going to tie this 2020 campaign message, this idea of fighting for some fundamental ideas about America with the reason why he would argue it's his job to do it, because it is a project unfinished. And as you heard him say in the State of the Union, he wants to finish the job. And that's going to be the theme you'll hear going forward. What's interesting, I think, is that he wants to finish the job while facing increasing headwinds and some concern among members of his own party. So whether it's Joe Manchin just in the last, you know, 12 hours coming out and saying, look, Biden administration, you better do what you promised to do on energy and investment or I'm going to vote to repeal 
uh, the IRA, right, a huge legislative achievement, or Democrats who privately told CNN they're worried that Biden isn't sitting down with McCarthy and willing to give a little on the debt ceiling. Yeah, you know, in a way, he knows going into this that there are significant challenges. Just look at his popularity. I mean, he's way lower than he would want to be. Obviously, the big question for a lot of people is about age. And there's two ways you can handle that. You know, in a moment like this, you can either tackle those head on. But in this mm -hmm. moment, what he said was, no, no, we have to go larger than that. This is an election that is, once again, not going to rest on people's kind of small ball mechanical political decisions. It's going to rest on fundamental choices about what kind of candidate you believe is a better fit for the United States. So, you know, this is the beginning of the process. And eventually his goal is to try to say, we'll bring Democrats around to us. And Evan, how does he handle the age thing in your view? Because CNN's KFL has uncovered some reporting, you know, of, this is obviously back when Biden was 29 years old, but he was running against a 63 year old and he made age an issue. He made it. He had it, several ads where he, you know, this is he was running against Kale Boggs. And in these ads, he, you know, would say things like Kale doesn't want to run. He's lost that old twinkle in his eye that he used to have. He placed ads against him, against him with the slogan saying, you know, he understands what's happening today, highlighting issues uh, that were impacting voters at the time versus what Boggs had previously campaigned on, really drawing that contrast that many people are now drawing, even if they do so privately. How does Biden handle the age issue today? Yeah, you know, it, in some ways, where you stand depends on where you sit. And in this moment, he is finding himself in a bit of a role reversal in that first election, 1972. You know, he really did have the image of being the voice of a new generation. He was a, an opponent of the Vietnam War. He would tell you today that this is a moment in which there will be a time for a new generation of leadership. And in his view, he has begun that process by bringing them into the White House. If you look at the diversity of this administration in terms of race and gender, it really is more diverse than the previous two administrations and his appointments to the federal bench. But it is going to be an argument he has to make to Americans that uh, that in in the midst of a continuing crisis about the very basic rights as Americans, about abortion, about democracy, about voting, mm -hmm. that this is a time, he would say, to put a proven asset there uh, before we turn the page. Reminded of what David Gergen, CNN contributor and former advisor to four presidents, Republicans and Democrats, said on this network about a year ago, talking about 2024 and Trump and Biden and if it was a matchup and both of their ages. And he said, we've never seen anything like that before. I think it's a real risk. And he talked about how he felt when he turned 80. And he said, you know, you're not quite your judgment isn't quite as clear as it was. And, and I just thought it was notable to hear David say that, because now that is what the American people are looking at as the incumbent president and the frontrunner, Donald Trump, uh, in the Republican Party, both very old. It's true. You know, I once had an interview with with uh, then Vice President Biden about the subject of age. We were talking about this question and I I said, how do you think about it? And he said, you know, I actually regret once that we encouraged my own father to retire when we did. I think it was sooner than he needed to. He said, if you still feel you can do the job and you have physical health, then I think you should be able to do it. And if you fast forward to today, you know, that's how he sees it. And I think, mm -hmm. oddly enough, actually running against Donald Trump, if he is the front runner in the end, if he is the nominee, that undermines the age argument for Republicans, because after all, Donald Trump has already been the oldest president in American history before uh, when he was in office. And so it makes it a harder case to make. Joe Biden would say, you know, look at me, look at my record mm -hmm. and look at the stakes of this election. Yeah, it would be a much sharper contrast if it's uh, Governor DeSantis. I was example. just saying, good point, Evan, because people who we know are going to get in the race 
haven't gotten in the race yet. And that's why the White House wants the Republican nominee to be Trump, that for many other reasons. Evan Osnos, thank you so much for that insight this morning. And of course, we'll continue to follow this announcement throughout the day ahead in our seven o'clock hour. We are going to be joined by Republican presidential candidate, not former President Trump, but Asa Hutchinson to get his view on Biden's reelection announcement. Yeah, I look forward to that. We are set to find out this summer, we've learned, whether an Atlanta area prosecutor will criminally charge former President Trump in Georgia's 2020 election interference case. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has sent a letter to law enforcement saying the announcement could come anytime between July 11th and September 1st. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution first reported that letter. Willis sending a warning to law enforcement because she says the case, quote, may provoke significant public reaction. She is weighing whether to charge Trump or any of his allies for their attempts to overturn the results of Georgia's 2020 election. So let's bring in our senior crime and justice reporter, Caitlin Polance, who joins us now. It's interesting. I mean, it was a surprising letter to send. She outlined sort of this two month time frame. And there's a whole host of folks outside of the former president who could be charged in this. What's your take? That's right. Uh, so we know that there are more than a dozen people that could be charged. But at the top of the list is Donald Trump, the former president who is clearly under investigation here. His behavior in Georgia, that phone call to Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, that is all something that Fonnie Willis and her team are looking at, that the grand jury, the special grand jury already investigated and have made recommendations. And now we're just waiting for these charging decisions. So this letter from Fonnie Willis, the district attorney in Fulton County, Poppy and Caitlin, it says, a couple things. It says, quite frankly, uh, that Fonnie Willis does plan to announce charging decisions in the 2020 election investigation. So that confirmation that they are going to be coming to a conclusion here pretty soon, giving the timeline. It's essentially an eight-week period in July going through the end of August when those charging decisions would be announced. And the reason is this concern over security. Uh, so this letter doesn't say that Donald Trump himself will be indicted. That is something Thing that remains to be seen. The grand jury will have to look at. But there's a clear subtext here that Donald Trump supporters may be quite angry. Uh, and here's what Willis writes in her letter. Open source intelligence has indicated the announcement of decisions in this case may provoke a significant public reaction. And she goes on, we have seen in recent years that some may go outside of public expressions of opinion that are protected by the First Amendment to engage in acts of violence that will endanger the safety of our community. As leaders, it is incumbent upon us to prepare. She's not mentioning January 6th itself, but obviously she's investigating the lead up to that event, the Capitol riot. And that seems to be a, a nod there. Okay, Caitlin Polens, thank you so much. It's interesting because this follows not seeing an outbreak of violence in New York after the charges. Yeah, but it is interesting to see just how they're preparing so far in advance. And so far in advance. Heads up and of course, the indications, people read into that, what that could mean and who they could be charging. And using the word significant yeah. in there. We'll see what that looks like. We will obviously stay on top of that with Caitlin Polance. Also coming up, there are new images of American diplomats who have just been rescued from war-torn Sudan. We're now learning that the United States is sending warships and possibly troops to help those who are still trapped. And the police officer who fired the shot that killed Breonna Taylor in a botched raid now has a new job. How her family's reacting. Are you surprised? Can't say that I am. Um, it's this good old boy system.
you are looking there at New York this morning, but we are also getting some international news in. These are images that we are showing you here first on CNN of American diplomats after U.S. Special Forces evacuated them from war-torn Sudan. This is a photo of the U.S. ambassador to Sudan shaking hands with the commander at the Navy base in Djibouti following the rescue operation. A three-day ceasefire is now underway for now in Sudan between these two rival military factions that are fighting for power. Of course, the U.S. helped broker this truce. We saw the announcement yesterday from the Secretary of State, and we are now learning the Pentagon is deploying warships and maybe even troops to Sudan to help evacuate the Americans who are still stranded. CNN's senior international correspondent, Sam Kiley, is in Djibouti and has been covering all of this. Sam, of course, CNN journalists on the ground, you've heard gunfire despite the ceasefire. What is the state of the play right now? Well, I think that that is exactly the problem, Caitlin, that we've had successive uh, ceasefires that have been negotiated uh, in Khartoum in particular, notably for the end of Eid, which was also over the weekend supposed to be the opportunity for the international community led by the Americans to begin evacuating their staff from uh, the uh, their embassies. But it was observed in the breach, really. There were airstrikes were being carried out, particularly as French and uh, British special forces were still on the ground doing evacuations. There was fighting that continued. It caused the Americans actually to say they wanted the remaining American citizens, an estimated 16,000 people, to shelter in place rather than even try and get out and join convoys uh, being organized by other nations over land to get out of the country. Now there is this ceasefire. There has been reports of fighting, but it is being considered a slightly more quotes, permissive environment. So the British, for example, uh, have plans to try to continue an airlift of their citizens, an estimated 4,000 people with British passports in uh, Sudan. They believe they may be able to get into a, uh, an airstrip not far outside of the capital city, Khartoum. But they're also, alongside the United States, sending warships to Port Sudan. And there is contingency, it's only contingency planning at this stage, Caitlin, for a, to take over Port Sudan effectively in order to uh, use that as a base if, if the fighting suddenly escalates at the end of this 72-hour period or indeed if the ceasefire doesn't hold at all and it becomes necessary to try to have some kind of a bridgehead for uh, mass evacuations out of Port Sudan. That's still a contingency plan. It is a last resort, but certainly the British and the Americans are getting assets in place to, able to be able to trigger that if they need to. Caitlin? Yeah, clearly they have a concern. They may have to get to that last resort. Sam Kiley, I know you'll stay on top of the updates. We'll stay with you. Thank you so much. Later today, jury selection will begin in columnist E. Jean Carroll's lawsuit against former President Trump. How this trial right here in New York could play out. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. So today, jury selection begins in E. Jean Carroll's battery and defamation case against former President Donald Trump. The columnist is accusing him of raping her in the mid-90s and then defaming her years later when he denied that it took place. She says she was raped in a Bergdorf Goodman dressing room which he denies it's a civil trial, so jail time is not on the table. But Carol is suing the former president for unspecified damages, accusing him of battery and defamation. Our senior legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed, is here. I think a lot of people tuning in this morning will be saying, I've been hearing about this for a really long time. Now this finally goes to trial. Yeah, and another question a lot of people have is, well, how does a rape that allegedly occurred 30 years ago go to trial now? And the answer is that back in 2021, New York opened a window and the statute right. of limitations 
that allowed Carroll to pursue this claim. But this is, of course, just the latest in a long running list of legal problems for the former president. E. Jean Carroll finally getting her day in court four years after filing a lawsuit accusing Donald Trump of raping her in Bergdorf Goodman in the 90s. It's just a dumb thing to go into a dressing room with a man that I hardly know and have him shut the door and then be unable to stop him. Sexual violence is in every country, in every strata of, of society. Carol first went public with her allegations against Trump in 2019. Then President Trump fired back at Carol the day her article came out, denying the allegations and saying the two never even met. I have no idea who this woman is. This is a woman who's also accused other men of things, as you know. Uh, it is a totally false accusation. Despite this photo from the 1980s showing Carol and Trump chatting, that Trump acknowledges. There's some picture where we're shaking hands. It looks like at some kind of event. Carol's lawyers say they plan to call witnesses to back up her story. And the judge has ruled two other women who alleged Trump forced himself on them can also take the stand. Carol's team may also play a clip from the infamous Access Hollywood tape that surfaced during the 2016 presidential election. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. The Trump camp has previously dismissed his comments on that tape as nothing more than, quote, locker room talk. Carol's civil battery and defamation trial is expected to take up to two weeks after the jury is selected. While Trump is not expected to appear in court, he took to Truth Social to blast Carol ahead of the trial, saying she is not telling the truth and that he has to go through years of more legal nonsense in order to clear my name of her and her lawyer's phony attacks on me. This can only happen to Trump. Carol is seeking unspecified monetary damages, and she also wants a retraction of a social media post that the former president made about her. Now, a lot of people wondering if the former president will show up in court, but unlike his historic court appearance earlier this month, it is unlikely that we're going to see him in court here. I've spoken with some of his lawyers on other cases, and I can tell you they are quite nervous about any prospect of him getting on a witness stand right now. Yeah, of course. And we've heard, you know, Bill Barr, who was his attorney general, say he should never be put on the witness stand because he doesn't think it would be very effective to any of his cases in any of the That is some legal excellent troubles. legal advice from the former attorney general. Yeah. Uh, all right, Paula, thank you so much. You. Also this morning, the Mississippi River now flooding and spilling into communities that run alongside it. We actually have a 3D look at the areas that are going to be the most impacted by that. Also, she's a Russian socialite with troubling ties to Russia's war in Ukraine. Now her lavish Parisian lifestyle is sparking protests. We'll tell you who next. All right, there's outrage this morning after a sheriff's department in Kentucky hired the former cop who shot and killed Breonna Taylor in Louisville. Former officer Miles Cosgrove's attorney has confirmed that the Carroll County Sheriff's Department, about an hour outside of Louisville, has hired his client. Cosgrove, of course, is one of the seven cops who was involved in that botched overnight raid on Taylor's apartment just three years ago. The state's attorney general says that he fired the bullet that killed her. The Louisville Metro Police Department fired him nearly a year later. Now here we are. CNN National Correspondent Jason Carroll is here. Of course, this must be so painful 
for it, her family. It really, really is. I spoke to Breonna Taylor's mother last night, and she says when something like this happens, it once again makes her question whether or not she's ever going to see some sort of justice. Um, as for Cosgrove, I spoke to his attorney, and he says his client is willing, that he is capable, and he's ready to start his new job. Brianna Taylor's mother had one word to describe how she felt after learning former Louisville Metro police officer Miles Cosgrove had been rehired by another department. Anger um, to think that another department would even want this guy to be a part of any department for that matter just angers me. According to a CNN affiliate, the Carroll County Sheriff's Department cited Cosgrove's experience as the reason behind the hire. His attorney confirmed the former LMPD officer recently started with the Sheriff's Department. So on behalf of Miles and myself, we don't want anything to take away or diminish the value of the tragedy that happened to Brianna Taylor and her family. We're not minimizing that at all, but he definitely has had a hard road to go and getting back to trying to figure out a way to support his family in the future. Cosgrove was one of three LMPD officers who fired their weapons during a raid on Breonna Taylor's apartment the night of March 13, 2020. Cosgrove fired more than a dozen times, including the fatal bullet that killed Taylor, though the Louisville Metro Police Department fired him in January of 2021 for failing to use his body camera and violating the department's use of force rules. I started shooting as soon as I saw the flash, almost, almost simultaneously. During a department hearing to appeal his firing, Cosgrove expressed remorse. Do you regret that Breonna Taylor ended up being shot and killed? Of course. Of course I do. It's, it's horrible. The department's merit board upheld his dismissal. Despite that, the Carroll County Sheriff's Department decided to hire Cosgrove. His attorney notes four other officers in the raid face federal charges in connection with that raid, three accused of lying in order to obtain a search warrant. One former LMPD officer, Kelly Goodlett, admitted in federal court that she and another officer had falsified information in the warrant that was used to justify the raid on Taylor's apartment. U.S. Attorney Merrick Garland says had it not been for that faulty warrant, Taylor would be alive today. Cosgrove's attorney reminded those who oppose his client being hired that he has not been charged with any crime. There was a grand jury that met at the state of Kentucky that cleared him of any wrongdoing. A federal grand jury was convened and also determined that there were other people who warranted being charged criminally, but not Miles. It's this good old boy system. Like, so I'm not surprised at all. Those seeking justice for Breonna Taylor say Cosgrove getting a badge back is a danger to the new community he is serving. The people of Carroll County should be very afraid and, and should not let this hire stand. You don't know what to trust anymore or who to trust. It's insane to me. 
and the mayor of Carrollton there in Carroll County weighing in on this. He says that he was completely unaware that Cosgrove had been hired. The first thing he heard about it was actually on Thursday at 2 p.m. He said this was a decision made solely by the Carroll County Sheriff and it had nothing to do with the city. And actually, Kate, he said that uh, Cosgrove had actually applied for a job with the city of Carrollton in the past, but was not hired. Wow. And now, of course, maybe they had nothing to do with it, but they will be facing a lot of questions about this as Without well. Questions. Jason Carroll, thank you. you and also, we should note that in the next hour, Brianna Taylor's mother, Tamika Palmer, is going to join CNN This Morning Live. Meantime, this morning, major flooding across the upper Midwest. Near record snowfall is now melting and causing the Mississippi River to slowly crest. Waters are rising from North Dakota to Wisconsin and Iowa, where residents are preparing uh, for the flooding that is expected to get worse this week. Let's go to our meteorologist, Derek Van Dam. I keep thinking about that, right? From Minnesota, Mississippi runs right through us. There's a lot of snow, and now there's bad flooding. Is it going to get worse? Without a doubt, this uh, annual slow-moving disaster is forecast to be some of the worst in decades for some of these cities that do line the Mississippi River from Wisconsin through Minnesota, your home state, Poppy, and uh, further southward into Iowa as well. You're looking at Fountain City, Wisconsin. You can see people sandbagging their businesses. Seems like their efforts are a bit futile at the moment because that water finding and seeking its own level and already finding it into the basements and homes of the residents who reside there. Now, look at this three-dimension graphic. I can show you just the Mississippi River Basin into the Red River area, the Mississippi uh, or the Missouri River Basin as well. Those purple dots indicate river gauges that are at major flood stages. There are over 30 right now, and it's only going to continue to get worse as we go forward in time. And the reason is that we've had record-setting snowpack this season for many people across the upper Midwest. And I want to show you this. This is the current snowpack across the upper Midwest. And this white line right here, I'm actually drawing a blue line over it, but this is the Mississippi River Valley. So any water droplet that melts from the snowpack here is going to eventually filter into the Mississippi River, and that is going to allow for this slow-moving disaster to continue continue to build further and further south as it continues to see that water push into places like La Crosse, Wisconsin, for instance. We have over 400 miles of flood warnings from the uh, Mississippi River further southward, and you can see those purple dots starting to expand in coverage later into the weekend. Places like Muscatine, Iowa, expected to crest with some of the worst flooding that they've seen in decades. Thank you for Poppy. keeping a very close eye on it, thinking about folks there. Derek, yeah. thanks. Absolutely. Absolutely. Also this morning, Tucker Carlson's tenure at Fox News has now come to an abrupt end. How he could use his influence, though, among conservatives in the upcoming election and beyond. We're going to talk about it all next. And she is leading a life of luxury in France while her ex-husband is leading Russia's invasion into Ukraine. A Russian socialite has been caught shopping in Paris and partying at an exclusive ski resort despite her previous partner's ongoing role in the war. CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, joins us now from London. Clarissa, who is this socialite? You know, what is she up to? And the, just the contrast of what she's doing and what's happening in Ukraine is striking. It's very striking, Caitlin, and honestly, it's one of those stories that literally makes people's blood boil, and it has caused a big uproar in France, where Svetlana Manuelovich continues to travel despite the role of her husband in the war, and despite the fact uh, that, you know, she is spending all this money as people are dying, and there are very real questions as to where that money comes from. 
Svetlana Maniovich is a woman of expensive tastes. Diamonds and couture, extravagant parties and European vacations. Just last month, she was seen shopping and dancing in the elite French ski resort of Courcheval. But Manjovic is no ordinary Russian socialite. She is the other half of Russia's deputy minister of defense, Timur Ivanov, one of the most senior architects of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And according to a shocking investigation, Maniovich continues to gallivant around France, more than a year into Russia's bloody war, despite the fact that Ivanov was sanctioned by the EU in October. The explosive report put out by the Anti-Corruption Foundation, an investigative outfit founded by Russia's jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny, is based, they say, on a leaked archive of more than 8,000 of Maniovich's emails over the last 12 years and has racked up more than 6 million views on YouTube. It claims that on March 25, 2022, as dozens of missiles rained down on the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv, Maniovich spent more than $100,000 in a top Paris jewelry store on the Place Vendôme. How is it possible that she can continue to do this? It's, it's a very simple uh, trick that they've played. Point number one, Svetlana has an Israeli passport through her first, uh, through her first husband. And second of all, six months into the war, uh, they have filed for divorce. Um, they haven't, they haven't split any assets. Nothing has changed in terms of like, you know, daily life. This, whatever they owned, they keep owning together. But technically, they're not uh, legally married anymore. Equally shocking are the opulent lifestyle and lavish spending that the leaked emails document. According to Russian business publication RBC, Ivanov's official income was once declared to be around 14.2 million rubles a year, less than $175,000. Yet the Navalny Group's report calculated that the couple spent more than a quarter of a million dollars in just one summer. CNN has not been able to independently verify those numbers. How is he funding this lifestyle? Well, the answer is corruption. Corruption and specifically kickbacks. According to the Russian government, Ivanov oversees construction for Russia's Ministry of Defense, including what the Anti-Corruption Foundation describes as lucrative contracts to rebuild the Ukrainian city of Mariupol, which fell to Russian forces under punishing bombardment last May. The Russian army has destroyed, demolished 70% of the um, apartment blocks in town. They had to build new ones, and they did. So that company that built those display houses in Mariupol, it is um, the same company that pays for Timur Ivanov's personal bills. Despite claims of such brazen corruption, Putin toured the construction project last month. A request for comment on the investigation from the Russian Ministry of Defense received no reply. In France, though, the pressure may be mounting. On Sunday afternoon, the Anti-Corruption Foundation organized a small protest outside the Paris apartment it claims Maniovich still rents, demanding to know how she is allowed to spend the profits of Russia's war in the heart of France, a question so far without any satisfactory answer. 
CNN has reached out to France's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. They uh, released a statement saying, we do not comment on individual situations. France, with its EU partners, has ended visa facilitation for Russian citizens and has also adopted targeted individual sanctions against 1,499 Russian officials and their supporters, which resulted in an asset freeze and a ban on their entry into the European Union. Of course, we also tried to reach out to Svetlana herself. We sent her an email. We reached out to her on Instagram. Perhaps unsurprisingly, though, Poppy and Caitlin, we have yet to hear back. Yeah, remarkable to see they've severed ties on paper, but clearly not when it comes to the assets. So far, Clarissa Ward, fascinating report. Thank you. Aaron Rodgers. New York bound. Could he help the struggling Jets take off this season? National insider for the NFL Network, Ian Rappaport, is here to discuss. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Aaron Rodgers, an all-time great and future Hall of Famer, will soon be a New York Jet. After a six-week-long stalemate, the Jets finally reached a deal with the Green Bay Packers to bring the four-time MVP to New York, but it will cost them an arm and a leg. Is it going to be worth it? Joining us now, Ian Rappaport. He's a national insider for the NFL Network and NFL.com. I was just saying in the break, wasn't he going to retire? There was a retire, and then there was the darkness retreat, and then he saw the light of New York City, and now he's coming. I mean, it is it has all been amazing. It has all been a journey, not quite like the personal journey that Aaron Rodgers has been on the last six weeks or so, but a journey for all of us. Yeah, Aaron Rodgers did consider retirement, said on the Pat McAfee show he was 90% going to retire. Then he went to the darkness and comes out wanting to play for the Jets. And that really kick-started this whole thing when he said he intended to be a member of the Jets. I would say trade talks probably picked up from there. They were going along kind of slow. Then there was about a two-week lull. And then my understanding is right before the weekend, the Jets and Packers re-engaged. And the significant issue here, the one thing that kind of took this from dormant talks to talks that were really imminent was the Green Bay Packers wanted a hard first rounder with no conditions, wanted a first rounder next year no matter what. They finally gave in a little bit of that and ended up being a conditional one Mm. based on how Aaron Rodgers played. That basically allowed this deal to happen and ended up in the blockbuster that we saw yesterday afternoon. Yeah, and it's that conditional second round, right? And so now, obviously, that this has happened, you know, he's finally got this team that is desperate for him. The big question, of course, is, is he's going to be able to make them, you know, championship contenders and what that looks like. What do you predict for his tenure when he's in New York? The Jets as a roster are good. It is a good team. They got talent. They got lots of young talent. Had really a, you know, I would say an all-time foundational draft from general manager Joe Douglas last year, including at least four starters, probably more. Uh, The offensive player of the year, the the offensive rookie of the year, the defensive rookie of the year, Brees Hall, who probably would have been had he not gotten injured. They just needed one thing. They needed a quarterback, and that is why this Aaron Rodgers trade made so much sense, and I would say it had to happen for Woody Johnson and the Jets because they have a team that is built to compete, built to go to the playoffs. They just needed someone who probably becomes the best player ever to play for the Jets, even though he's never played it down for them. Aaron Rodgers turns the Jets into a playoff team and maybe more. 
Okay, we'll see. Will they be Super Bowl contenders? Get some hopeful Jets fans in the studio we this hope, morning. We'll see. We have a lot of Jets fans behind the camera. We hoped when um, Brett Favre came to the Vikings that it would have taken us to the Super Bowl. Yeah, can he do what Brett Favre did? I don't know. Thank you. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Ian. CNN This Morning continues now. President Biden has made it official. That's why I'm running for re-election. There's new polling out how Americans feel about a possible rematch between him and the former president. If I'm in the White House right now, I'm hoping and praying that Donald Trump is the Republican nominee because by far Joe Biden's strongest against him. New details coming in from the Georgia DA on when she'll announce possible criminal indictments against Trump and his allies. It'll happen between July 11 and September 1st, according to Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis's letter to local law enforcement. These letters show she really does have the former president set in her sights. A sheriff's office in Kentucky has hired the officer who fired the fatal bullet that killed Breonna Taylor. His entire life has been upended as well. Not to take away anything from the tragedy that happened here. To think that another department would even want this guy just angers me. A new three-day ceasefire between Sudan's warring factions is currently in effect. This latest pause was brokered by the U.S. Secretary of State, who is also working with regional partners to try and implement a permanent end to the fighting. Our expectation is that this violence will stop, and a ceasefire that just got announced is a good sign. Now we'll see where it goes. Lakers down two, James off the window, it's one of the all-time great LeBron performances. 22 points, 20 rebounds, and 7 assists. Miami's won it and goes up three games to one. Jimmy Butler with the fourth most individual points in playoff game history. You've denied it before, but is playoff Jimmy a thing? Are you ready to? It's not a thing. It's not. I just, I just, I just be hooping. Good morning, everyone, especially to Jimmy Butler. It was an unreal (laughs) performance by him. I just couldn't even believe that. But also, that is not the breaking news this morning. We do have real breaking news this morning as President Biden is officially announcing he is running for re-election. The president launched his campaign with a video that took aim at Republicans over abortion, Social Security, and culture wars. Around the country, MAGA extremists are lining up to take on those bedrock freedoms, cutting Social Security, that you paid for your entire life while cutting taxes for the very wealthy, dictating what health care decisions women can make, banning books and telling people who they can love, all while making it more difficult for you to be able to vote. When I ran for president four years ago, I said we we're in a battle for the soul of America, and we still are. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead, we have more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer. I know what I want the answer to be, and I think you do too. This is not a time to be complacent. That's why I'm running for re-election. In fitting with his character, President Biden chose a symbolic day to make this announcement. It is the four-year anniversary of when he entered the 2020 presidential race. Joining us now, CNN senior political correspondent and anchor of Inside Politics Sunday, Abby Phillip, and national political correspondent for The New York Times, Shane Goldmacher. Guys, thank you so much for being here. Uh, great, great to have you on set. Uh, wh- how do you think that he is going to run? Because last time, it's during COVID, mm-hmm. you know, you couldn't actually be crisscrossing the country for a lot of this stuff. 
we don't really expect he'll be doing that this year either, right? Well, I, you know, I mean, he has the benefit of the incumbency, which actually makes re-elections a really different feel, at least for the first, I mean, I would say at least the first 12 months, if yeah. not longer. I mean, uh, I remember Barack Obama's re-election. He basically spent the first full year uh, doing normal presidential stuff that kind of doubles as campaign stops. And then he does a fundraiser here. And, and the official events really become uh, unofficial campaign events. I think we'll see the same thing from President Biden. I don't think you're going to see him in the basement. We're not in that place anymore. Uh, but uh, he's not going to be kind of in the Trump mode doing huge rallies. First right. of all, that's not, that's his, not style his style anyway. He's not good at it. They're going to they're going to stick with what he knows. Uh, and they're going to focus on legislative accomplishments. Mm -hmm. And you're going to see a lot of surrogates, I think, on the, the campaign trail for this president as well. Yeah, you're already seeing all the co-chairs, yeah. Governor Gretchen Whitmer, others like that. What did you make of the video? Because it is striking to me in the first moment, it's January 6th footage. Yeah. I mean, this is, tells you where this campaign is going to begin. It tells you where the campaign is going to end. Donald Trump is the person that Joe Biden is running against, and he's running against, you know, he describes MAGA extremists over and over and over again. That's how he starts the video. That's what the campaign is going to be about. And as Abby was talking about, he really is going to use the power of the White House to center this campaign. And you're going to see it even on his events today, right? There's a video, but Joe Biden doesn't actually have a political event today. He's going to go talk to a union, and it's going to be part of his official presidential duties. But there is one other event happening today that the person on the ticket is doing, which is Kamala Harris, and she's doing an event about abortion. And I think that's one of the other big issues that's going to be different from the last campaign. Roe has really changed the dynamic for Democrats, and they're absolutely centering that in the campaign from the start. Yeah, good point. Gretchen Whitmer has been really out in front on that as well. The polling is not great for Biden in terms of even Democrats that don't want to see him run again. 51% of Democrats said in this new poll over the weekend they don't want to see him run again. It's not like they're saying, but we want X. Yeah. But it's, it reminds us of what Biden himself said, and it was 2020, March 10, 2020. Quote, look, I view myself as a bridge, not as anything else. There's an entire generation of leaders you saw standing behind me. He was with Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Gretchen Whitmer, et cetera. He said... They're the future of this country. Yeah, I mean, by the way, I think he probably still believes that he's a bridge. It's just that a longer bridge. It's, a, lo it's bridge? a much longer bridge. And even honestly, I think it's a longer bridge than even <laughs> he expected. I don't know that Biden thought I, I win the 2020 election and then I'll be maybe running against Trump again. And so that's the situation that the country finds itself in. And I think under those circumstances, Biden, uh, you know, from when I talk to people around him, he feels pretty good about his chances up against a Trump, for example. And, and other polls, when you ask Democrats if Biden were the nominee, right. would you vote for them? The number is like 81%. So um, that's about where he needs to be. He probably needs to be a little bit higher than that, but it's about where he needs to be with Democrats. I think a lot of Democrats, it's, it's a choice here. It's not just Biden in a vacuum. It's Biden against the other guy who's in his late 70s as well, and, and by the way, happens to be someone that Democratic voters actively want to vote against. And remember, in his first few months in office, he predicted Republicans moving away from Trump. That clearly has not happened. Trump is still the front runner of that race. One thing that did happen, though, in conservative politics and conservative world yesterday is the abrupt departure of Tucker Carlson yes. from Fox News. And not just a question of what that means for them, but also for the media environment overall, because The New York Times is reporting, and we've confirmed this as well, that Trump world was stunned by this. And, of course, there's big questions of how that factors into this. 
Yeah, I think that Tucker Carlson had emerged as one of the most important media figures for the 2024 Republican primary. It's where some of the also-rans or like lower tier candidates had announced their campaigns. He had expressed privately some real criticisms of Donald Trump, but he then just gave him a platform for an hour. He has been a driving force for the party toward Trumpism, especially on foreign policy. Ukraine, yes. And with his exit, it really is going to open up are there, is there going to be a venue for other candidates to potentially uh, find, find a home on television that, that supports them on that network? Yeah, I mean, I, to me, this is not a, just a media story. It's very much a political story. Mm-hmm. Tucker Carlson, as you know, Caitlin, I mean, he is a very influential person in the Trump administration. Uh, not only what he said was critical, but also um, he was in, in some ways kind of a, an informal advisor to Republicans and to this president. He sets the agenda a lot of times on that show. If you want to know uh, how you know, Republican politicians are going to come down on an issue, you may want to watch his show. And with that gone on Fox News, that's one thing. But I'm not sure we've seen the last of Tucker Carlson, really. I was just going to say, I think it's a great point because we have literally seen Republican politicians come out the morning after they're criticized on Tucker Carlson and change their position. But to your last point, just because he's not on Fox doesn't mean he's not anywhere. I would... I would absolutely not say that this is closing the book on Tucker Carlson and on his influence on our politics. I mean, if I, I saw it when you go to his website, they have a place where people, his viewers, can sign up to learn more about what's next for him. This is going to be an important thing. And, and in some ways, he's going to be unleashed from the kind of whatever minor chains there were in conventional <laughs> media and will be kind of more free to say the things that he said um, this is not a story that is over, and it's coming at a critical time uh, when the Republican Party is trying to figure out where they land. It's not just on Ukraine and foreign policy, but Tucker Carlson has been a major driver of a real xenophobia um, in strain in the party, and I think we'll probably see a lot more of that. What's your sense of the impact it has? Look, I think it has a big impact, and just as Abby's saying, on the party and on the media landscape. And yeah, look, Tucker Carlson is not losing his megaphone. In fact, he has an appearance that he's already been scheduled to make in Iowa uh, over the summer. Not saying he's going to run for office someday, but he already wants to influence this process. And so he's absolutely going nowhere. He's collecting phone numbers. He's going to have a bank of supporters. And you just saw the reaction from Republicans yesterday. They were lamenting his demise and saying, we need a new network for Tucker Carlson. And look, there are financiers out here on the Republican side who would like to get his voice out there. And I expect him to to stay out there. Trump was pretty surprised, too. Yeah. Yeah, Trump was very surprised by it and people in his orbit. I mean, everyone was, but definitely them. And they're going to feel the effects of it. Shane, Abby, great conversation. Thank you both for being here. Uh, of course, as we are speaking of for President Trump, he is also set to find out this summer if he or any of his allies are going to be criminally charged in Georgia. We have now heard from the Fulton County District Attorney, Fonnie Willis, who announced yesterday she will make a decision on indictments sometime between July 11th and September the 1st. The news came in a letter that she wrote to law enforcement alerting them of that specific time frame so they have enough time to prepare security and be ready to, quote, ensure that our law enforcement community is ready to protect the public. Willis's office has been investigating efforts by Trump and his allies to overturn the results of Georgia's 2020 presidential election. Trump has slammed the case, saying it's politically motivated. And we should note he was not named in this letter. Tamara Hollerman joins us now. She broke this story for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And of course, she didn't name him in this. But the questions about her uh, feeling the need to alert law enforcement about this is what's raising the questions, that if she is going to bring charges against someone like a former President Trump, it could bring about mass protests. They don't know what that response 
could look like. You know, what else does your reporting show about this? Pretty much every single legal expert I spoke to yesterday, Caitlin, mentioned this is not the sort of letter that you send if you're not planning to indict somebody like former President Trump. Um, So this is setting off all sorts of alarm bells down here in Georgia. And of course, authorities here have been closely watching what's been going on in Manhattan in that separate criminal case involving the DA to watch the different preparations that have been made, protests, that sort of thing. And of course, Georgia is a much more closely divided state politically than New York is, and we have broader open carry gun laws here. So I think authorities were asking for additional time to prepare, and that's what these letters are all about. I was really surprised, A, just to see it, but also to see it two months ahead of the time frame that she also laid out for possible indictments, which could be against maybe the former president and maybe a, a number of other people as well, by the way. I, I was just surprised at that, especially given the extent to which DAs go and prosecutors' offices to keep grand juries very, very uh, lit on them, very, very quiet, right? So why would she put any indicator out there at all publicly? I mean, there's been a lot of pressure on the DA. She announced her criminal investigation more than two years ago, and this stems from the phone call that former President Trump had with Brad Raffensperger, Georgia's Secretary of State. She's been under immense pressure to do something, especially as this case in New York has continued, especially as the Justice Department has continued its separate inquiries. And I think she's also planting her flag in the sand saying, hey, I'm still continuing to work on this, Mm -hmm. but also showing that there still is work to be done. We heard last week that she was interviewing several alternate GOP electors who had previously been announced as targets of the probe. Um, It shows that there's movement. There might potentially be immunity deals in place to allow for their testimony. And it's clear that she's finding out additional information that might help in a broader racketeering charge, something she's mentioned she's looking at from the beginning. Can I just ask follow up on that? Can you explain if she goes the racketeering route, which she's used before in other really high profile cases? Explain what that would look like to the American people, because that is a really interesting and sort of novel approach. Exactly. It's something the DA is known for. As you mentioned, Poppy, uh, she used it very famously here in 2015 with an Atlanta public schools cheating case where she was able to secure guilty convictions for uh, a slew of educators here. She's using it right now in a gang indictment uh, with award-winning rappers here in Georgia. And it basically allows prosecutors to tell a broader narrative story uh, with characters and people doing things on, on a person's behalf. So if you think of it as a pyramid, they're kind of showing that all these underlings were doing something to further a broader cause, an enterprise, which in this case might be the Trump presidency or the White House if the DA was to go that way. One thing I'm struck by is the timing. The window that she provided is pretty big, actually. We don't actually know when this is going to happen, but that is when the first Republican presidential debate is set to take place. That's in August, which is right in the middle of that window, what's your sense from your reporting of the political considerations that a district attorney makes in in a decision like this? This is something when you ask prosecutors about it, they always say that politics do not drive their decision-making and that they're following the evidence. But of course, it's so hard to ignore former President Trump running once again for the Republican nomination and DA Willis herself is up for re-election in 2024. And this is a fight that should the DA decide to pursue indictments could stretch out for years. Um, She's paused proceedings in the past in her investigation in the lead up to primaries and elections, which I would expect for her to 
to do in 2024. Uh, but this creates all sorts of headaches. And should she go this route, there's going to be all sorts of fights over jurisdiction, something that plays out in state courts or federal courts, and that will all take time to play out. Tamar uh, Hallerman, thank you very much. Obviously, kudos on breaking the story in your reporting. Appreciate Absolutely. it. This morning, North Dakota has one of the strictest abortion laws in the country. Republican gov the Republican governor there has signed a measure, this happened yesterday, banning abortions with no exceptions for rape or incest after six weeks. But it does make an exception if the woman is facing a serious health risk. This new law, which makes it a felony for a doctor to perform an abortion, goes into effect immediately. North Dakota no longer has any abortion clinics in the state. The last one moved to Minnesota in August. Just remarkable with the broader landscape of yeah. what that looks like. Also this morning, the police officer who was fired after shooting and killing Brianna Taylor is now back on the streets with a new job, sheriff's deputy. Coming up, we're going to speak to Brianna's mother about this new job and what impact she believes it has. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, the former Louisville detective who fired that fatal shot that killed Breonna Taylor three years ago now has a new job. Miles Cosgrove's attorney says that his client has been hired by a sheriff's office in a rural county that's about 50 miles from Louisville. Even though he was fired in Louisville, Cosgrove never lost his state peace officer certification. That means that he could apply for other law enforcement jobs in the state, which he did and has now gotten. Cosgrove, as a reminder, was the one who fired 16 rounds into Breonna Taylor's home during that botched raid that happened in the middle of the night in 2020. Taylor's death, along with the murder of George Floyd, sparked a wave of protest across the United States for police reform. Joining us now with the news this morning is Tamika Palmer, Breonna Taylor's mother, and Lenita Baker, who is one of the family's attorneys. And thank you both for being here this morning. Tamika, I just... I can't imagine how painful it is to hear this news. I wonder what your reaction was when you heard this. Anger, disappointment. Yeah. Were you surprised? I won't say that I was surprised. Um, I, I still can't believe it, I will say, but not surprised at all. One of the things we were talking about and thinking about is I just wonder if the because now, you know, he's allowed to be at work in the sheriff's department. Has the Carroll County Sheriff's Office reached out to you at all about this or have you reached out to them? No, neither. Um, I haven't reached out and they definitely haven't reached out. Um, I'm just disappointed um, in them. I just I can't understand why you would want this type of person to work in your department. I, you know, I'm scared for the people of Carroll County. We, um, our, our colleague, Jason Carroll, who's reported on this, spoke to the attorney for Officer Cosgrove last night. And I, I want to play you part of what he said and get your reaction. Here it is. On behalf of Miles and myself, we don't want anything to take away or diminish the value of the tragedy that happened to Breonna Taylor and her family. We're not minimizing that at all, but he definitely has had a hard road to go and getting back to trying to figure out a way to support his family in the future. Tamika, I can see the pain that 
Brings, take your time. I'm sorry. Don't, don't be sorry. Please take your time. To say he's had a heart around is insane to me. Brianna's not even here. Nina, what about you as an attorney? Yeah, I, th I think that Mal's um, attorney, his comments definitely try to eliminate Mal's own responsibility for Brianna's murder. Uh, we're talking about a man, in his own words, who could not see, who could not hear, who completely lost any type of sensory um, being and fired 16 rounds into Brianna's home without a target. He was he was fired for violating uh, police protocol and for him not to lose his certification and to be able to police in another city is absolutely asinine. The, the people of Curl County should be alarmed. Uh, they are in danger because this is a man when he was when when stress hit him, he, he lost all of his sensories. And that's using his words, not words that we're saying about him. That was in his own statement. He said he couldn't hear. He couldn't see. He blanked out. And in response to blanking out, he fired 16 rounds. That's reckless behavior. And if, if the standards for federal charges were not so high, meaning that it had to be actual intentional, he would absolutely be charged with the crime. And he should be charged with the crime in the state of Kentucky. And Lenita, I mean, you can see the pain on Tamika's face to hear those words, given obviously this. Unfortunately, she's not the only parent who is dealing with and reckoning with something like this. And there's no national database for officers who are fired for misconduct or are resigned because of misconduct, meaning they can be hired. You know, this this isn't likely the only situation where this is happening. So I wonder, you know, what it says to people overall who are other parents who are also dealing with something like this. Yeah. And this is even worse because we're not even talking about a national database that's needed to allow departments to know when other officers have been uh, engaged in misconduct. This was a national case. This has been on the news. Mm -hmm. Curl County is, is less than... 50 miles from Louisville. Curl County Sheriff's Office office knew about Miles Cosgrove. They knew about his termination. They knew about his violation of police protocol. So even with the national database, this would not have been. But this is about the certification. Kentucky certification, the, the certifying agency did not revoke his license. It should have been. If, if blanking out and firing shot blindly without a target is not enough to lose your certification, what is? I remember that day. It was August 4th, 2022, um, Tamika, when uh, when the Justice Department brought these federal charges against different officers in this shooting of your daughter. Um, but it included civil rights violations, conspiracy, use of excess force and obstruction. And you said at the time they shouldn't have been there. And Brianna didn't deserve that. You are all learning today that we are not crazy. Today is overdue, but it still hurts. That day for you, it was day 874 after losing her. You felt some sort of justice. I wonder what this does to that. It's a slap in the face, you know, to say, know that all these people did these things wrong, but to say that this person can go right back out in the street and do it again is insane to me. It is unsafe. It is 
heartbreaking. It's it's disappointing. Um, and and like Juanita said, it's not that we're saying this guy blacked out. He said in his own words he couldn't decipher whether it was one in the morning or three in the afternoon. He completely became tunnel. He was. Those were the words he used. And Tamika, given that, what do you say to the people who are now going to fall under his jurisdiction? Take cover. Take cover. And to fight that, to not accept that, because it's unacceptable and that they are not safe. We know this is so painful uh, for you, and we're grateful for your time, for you being willing to come on to talk about something that is so difficult for you to talk about. And thank you both for coming on this morning and for joining us. And thank you for having us. Thank you. It's just hard to hear that. I mean, mother's pain, grief, all back to the surface. We'll keep following this very closely. We'll see what happens as a result. Meantime, the College Board on Monday announced it is going to make changes over the next few months to what they've already revised, which is that AP African-American Studies course. It got a lot of attention, remember? The board released its revisions in February and immediately faced criticism by some who thought, what are you doing? This omits key concepts. It was influenced by political pressure, some said, like in Florida, where officials rejected the course. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had argued at the time that it imposed a, quote, political agenda. The board now this morning has not said what other changes are going to make, but they did put out a statement that reads in part in embarking on this effort. Access was our driving principle, both access to a discipline that has not been widely available to high school students and access for as many of those students as possible. Regrettably, along the way, those dual access goals have come into conflict. So we'll continue to watch what changes there. Meantime. First Republic Bank was really in the headlines over the last 24 hours. They're going to cut a quarter of their workforce as we get a first glimpse at just how hard they've been hit by this banking crisis. Drama on the Montana House floor. Police arrested seven people yesterday accused of interrupting proceedings. Protesters were there in support of Democratic State Representative Zoe Zephyr after Republican leaders continued to forbid her in taking part on the debate on the floor for the second week. Zephyr, who is transgender, has not been allowed to speak on the floor since Thursday after she said her Republican colleagues would have, quote, blood on their hands, close quote, if they banned gender-affirming care for transgender minors. Her supporters chanting in the gallery, let her speak. Watch this. Sergeant of Arms, will you please clear the gallery? Members, will you please go to the side of the chambers? Members, please go to the side of the chambers. The Montana House Freedom Caucus is demanding that Zephyr be censured for using inappropriate and uncalled for language. That is their quote on the floor of the House. We'll keep following this. That's happening there. Also this morning, two Bud Light executives are now reportedly being placed on leave after backlash over the brand's partnership with a popular transgender influencer. Sponsorship includes two Instagram posts that have been seen by almost everyone now. This is from Dylan Mulvaney. She has more than a million followers. The beer maker also sent her a can of beer with her face on it. That caused fallout that went from calls for a boycott to actual physical danger when Anheuser-Busch facilities began receiving threats. 
It's unclear how the controversy is going to affect their bottom line, if it will affect their bottom line. The company does report first quarter earnings on May 4th. First Republic Bank, uh, their deposits tumbled some 41 percent in the first quarter. We just learned that yesterday from their earnings report. And the numbers show the sheer magnitude of the banking crisis impact on that and some other regional banks. Our chief mm -hmm. business correspondent, Christine Romans, is with us now. I mean, there were there were questions, you know, what, six weeks ago, right. if First Republic was going to make it. All yep. the big guys, big banks and big male leaders, right. largely, <laughs> except for Jane <clears throat> at City, came in to try to rescue the bank. Yeah, and now the company says it has stabilized. Executives are looking to do some serious cost cutting. 20 to 25 percent of their workforce could be facing um, pink slips here, but just uh, uh, revealing the magnitude of those losses. When you look at it, it looks like $100 billion walked out the door. Those two big banks failed that week. There was this just panic in the banking sector. Briefly, it has stabilized hundred billion dollars people took out of their bank accounts and moved them elsewhere. And that has been a real problem for First Republic to stabilize. So they're cost cutting their they're changing the, the makeup of their balance sheet. The stock is down sharply here this morning. We'll watch all of the other regional bank stocks to see if if they can remain stable here. But just really a very good look at what happened to First Republic during that banking run. But also while we're keeping an eye on them, we saw a total massacre at Disney yesterday when it came to layoffs. Yeah. Now 3M, which is this massive American company that I think a lot of people became familiar with during the pandemic and the role that they sure. played in that. Now they're also having new layoffs. What's so that going to look like? We heard this morning from 3M that they are cutting some jobs here. And this is on top of jobs. They cut 2,500 jobs in January. Now they're cutting another 6,000 positions. They're calling this a restructuring. They want to simplify their supply chains. I've heard this from a lot of different companies, especially manufacturers. They want to reduce layers of management. We've heard that from media companies, manufacturing companies, tech companies, collapsing layers of management. So this is this mode we're in, this cost-cutting mode. Um, we heard from Disney. They've got probably 4,000 job cuts this week. They had announced, you remember, 7,000 job cuts overall. This will be the tough week for Disney folks. Uh, Monday through Thursday is when we're expecting those announcements. Uh, Bob Iger there wants to cut $5.5 billion in costs, and job cuts Ooh. are part of that. Is this a the great reckoning post-pandemic of companies reassessing those who overhired in tech, cut way back, now 3M, Disney? I think absolutely. And I think on the manufacturing side of that, part of that is a, a reckoning in supply chains. Yep. I keep hearing about simplifying supply chains, also levels of management. You're seeing that also um, over at, at Disney, where uh, Bob Iger wants content to be directly tied into the financial part of the business so that um, you have a much more streamlined what you're making and how much it earns kind of uh, structure over there. And I think in these tech companies, we're going to get a lot of tech earnings this week, guys. And um, we're going to hear how those layoffs have done and also how they're returning to profitability. The focus now is on profitability. The focus was on growth during the pandemic. And they, a lot of these places grew too fast and too much. Yeah. And now they're winding it back. Yeah. And we'll see what the cost of that looks like. Yeah. Christine Romans, thank nice you, you guys as always. Have a good morning. All right, also this morning, former President Trump has now sealed a big endorsement from a key Republican senator when some other Republicans have been quite quiet on his 2024 announcement. We're going to talk to someone who is challenging Trump for the Republican nomination, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. He's here live. He'll join us next. Before we go to break, though, a look at the over 200-year-old statue in England that was defaced earlier this month, the weapon. Those are blue crayons, folks. It happened on Easter Sunday when kids were given packs of crayons as part of an activity pack. 
A conservation society noted that the marks have now been removed. No word on the future of crayons on the ground. I'm okay, just, that's worse than drawing on the wall. I mean, I'm just like, I'm so glad it wasn't my child. Can you imagine? Easily been anybody's kid, right? Donald Trump has picked up a big endorsement in his bid to return to the White House with Montana Senator Steve Daines, who is throwing his support behind him now. Of course, Senator Daines is the head of the Senate Republicans campaign arm. He's a key Republican fundraiser. The best four years I've had in the U.S. Senate is when President Trump was serving the Oval Office. You talk about results. We passed and he signed a law, the greatest tax cut in American history. We transformed the courts, the Supreme Court, the circuit courts. We had a country that was respected and strong for these reasons and many others. I'm proud to endorse Donald J. Trump for president of the United States. Notable to hear that from a key Senate Republican. His endorsement is just the latest in a list for the former president, a list that now includes a number of Florida Republicans, of course, Republicans and rival Ron DeSantis's home state potential rival, I should note. Joining us now is another potential rival, a Republican hoping to unseat Trump atop the GOP polls in 2024, former Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson. Good morning, Governor, and thank you for being here. What do you make of this endorsement that Trump's getting from a key Republican fundraiser, but also the list of congressional endorsements he's gotten as well? Well, there's a little bit of incumbency there, uh, even though uh, Donald Trump lost the last election in 2020. He's still the former president, and so there's a lot of swag that goes with that. And so that's not a surprise, but uh, I do think there is a significant number in the Republican Party believe that we'll have a hard time winning against uh, Joe Biden in a repeat race between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and that we're going to have to have a change if we're going to win. And uh, we have some great alternatives. I'm going to be announcing in uh, Bentonville, which I'm very excited about, and talking about really the future and problem solving and the economy and what we need to do about crime and border security. So to me, it's about solutions and problem solving, and that's what Americans are really interested in. That'll actually be the test as to uh, who, who wins the nomination. And you're making that announcement formal tomorrow, as you noted, in Bentonville. How do you plan to take on Trump once you're officially in the race? You know, just like any other big challenge in life, you take it a step at a time. Uh, the first step is Iowa. The second step is uh, New Hampshire. And uh, it is building that level of support. Uh, tomorrow is a big day for me because uh, the nation gets to hear my story growing up in a small town on a farm, uh, the values that I learned and shaped my life and how I fought against the establishment in Arkansas to build a Republican Party and the conservative voice. So that's an exciting day when people get to know you and you get the opportunity to campaign retail-wise in uh, Iowa and other places. Uh, you know, it makes a difference. It grows. And so that's what we're going to do, take a step at a time. But it's also about the significant issues. And the issues that our country faces fit with my background in law enforcement, in border <laughs> security, in balancing a budget as governor. So that's the message, and I think it works. Yeah, the first step could also be some truth social posts where Trump has been attacking those who are challenging him. I will note, you know, we did hear from President Biden this morning at 6 a.m. in that video announcing today he is announcing he's running for re-election as well. With Biden running for re-election and Trump as the clear frontrunner right now in the Republican Party, 
Polls show, though, that a majority of Republicans and Democrats don't want either of them to be their party's nominee. But right now they are the front runners. How do you reckon with something like that? Well, first of all, in uh, Joe Biden's announcement today, the president really focused on the past more and some of the divisions. I would would hope and would think that he would be talking about uh, the economy and talking about uh, America's position in the world and strength. Uh, so I was a little disappointed in that, but it shows the contrast. But you're <laughs> right. Uh, no one wants a Biden-Trump replay of 2020. Uh, it was painful then. It would be painful again. And so I think they're looking for new leadership. And so you've just got to work it. You know, how do you do it? You go in there day by day and fight that battle because I believe in it. And I think it's important for our country's future. The governor of North Dakota has just signed into law one of the strictest anti-abortion laws in the country. We recently saw Florida Governor Ron DeSantis sign a six-week bill into law there. You, once as governor, also signed one of the strictest abortion laws um, as well. Is this a message Republicans can win on in 2024? Well, it's a matter of conviction and belief as to what is right. And the answer is yes. I believe that you win on... Uh, standing with the unborn and making it clear as to uh, how you want to help uh, women in problem pregnancies as well. Uh, this debate is going to continue, but it's going to be uh, also the debate about, again, the economy, inflation rates, high interest rates. And so this is just one layer of the issues that we have to face in the uh, 2024 campaign. Uh, I'm pro-life. Uh, I think it's important that uh, right now, the states have the prerogatives to determine their future, uh, but it could shift to a national debate in Congress. The Democrats will go one way if they have control. Republicans will go a different direction. And so it's naturally a big issue and, a, and an important one for many voters. But likely, you're not going to get that consensus. You're going to have a split government. And then it's going to be up to the states to make their determination. And that's how the political issues of our time are decided. Governor, I'm glad you brought that up because I was looking at some past comments that you've made on abortion and whether it is a state or federal issue. I want to show them to our viewers. We wanted the Roe versus Wade reversed and the authority to return to the states. And, I, and so as a matter of principle, that's where it should be. I don't believe uh, that we ought to go back to saying there ought to be a national uh, law that's passed. We've fought for 50 years to have this return to the states. We've won that battle. It's back to the states. Uh, let's let it be resolved there. They're calling for a 15 minimum, a uh, 15 week minimum. Uh, if you did have both houses of Congress and were President Hutchinson, would you sign it? The answer is I've always signed pro-life bills and a pro-life bill that uh, comes to me that sets a uh, reasonable restrictions, but also has the appropriate exceptions, yes, I would sign it. Governor, if it's we'll a, see. if it's, sorry, I think the clip was still playing there. If it is a state's issue, as you said before, why would you sign a federal abortion ban into law? Well, because I sign pro-life laws. I want to protect the unborn. I believe that it's most likely going to be resolved in the states uh, the United States Supreme Court said it's returned to our elected representatives. That could be our members of Congress, but it's also, first of all, uh, our states. And that's where I would prefer the issue to be resolved. But if Congress 
you know, if a Democrats pass a, uh, you know, abortion bill up to term, uh, I would veto that if the Republicans are in charge and they put reasonable res uh, exceptions in the bill, we'll look at it. But yes, I would likely be signing that if it's going to protect the unborn and it has those exceptions that the American people want. And I think that's where we actually come together more is that if you have those exceptions, the life of the mother, rape and incest in there, then reasonable restrictions are well, something the American given that, people Governor, would ex ex accept. I, I understand you're saying that now, but you could forgive some people for being skeptical of that because that's a position you've held before. But in Arkansas, you did sign a bill into law that did not have those exceptions. So how do people know that as president, you would ensure those exceptions are in there? Well, that's what I believe, and I think it's important. And I think that you see uh, across America, that's what the American public expects. And so I think that Congress would respond with those exceptions in the legislation. And so that's the legislative process. That can be worked through. But I've made it clear uh, whenever I signed the legislation in Arkansas that I believe we ought to have those exceptions for rape and incest in addition to the life of the mother. We also invested more in maternal health care and making sure our adoption services are enhanced. And so you've got to have all of that together when you're dealing with a challenge that moms face with uh, unexpected pregnancies and needing help. Yeah, maternal health care is a major issue in your state of Arkansas, my home state of Alabama as well. Governor, I know you're announcing your run officially tomorrow and you'll be back here on the program soon. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Good to be with you. Thank you. Really, really important exchange there. Okay, ahead. Thirsting for violence and organizing for action on January 6th. Those are words from the Justice Department, what they said in their closing arguments in the case against the Proud Boys. We'll give you the latest from that trial. And before we go to break, seriously, there's a new health study about French fries and your mental health. This is what it says. A research team in China has found that frequently eating fried foods, especially fried potatoes, is linked to a 12% higher risk of anxiety, a 7% higher risk of depression. That's compared to people who did not eat those fried foods. The study also found the link more pronounced among younger men and younger consumers in general. Do not panic just yet. Experts say these results are only preliminary. It's not necessarily clear whether or not they are final. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back to CNN this morning, ready for a quote, all out war. That is how prosecutors describe the far right extremist group Proud Boys during the sedition case involving five of its members. After months of legal battles, mistrial motions, the federal criminal trial has moved to its final stage. Both prosecutors and the defense gave closing arguments, which are expected to continue today. The jury is gonna decide whether the defendants are guilty of several federal crimes, including seditious conspiracy, high bar for that one, for what they did during the Capitol attack on January 6, 2021. All five defendants have pleaded not guilty. Sarah Seidner is with us, our fellow CNN anchor, um, and someone who's covered this so deeply, not only what happened that day, 
but so much about the group and the movement. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time talking with Enrique Tarrio, who was, uh, at the time, the leader of the Proud Boys. He has since stepped down. And now him and four others are on trial. And they've been on trial for weeks now. Yeah. A lot of people paid attention to the first trial about seditious conspiracy, and that was the Oath Keepers. Now, the Proud Boys have five people on trial. Of course, each of them have attorneys, so that's why this is very long. There's a lot of evidence that the prosecution is bringing. The prosecution called them Donald Trump's army. That's how he put it out to the jury. And he said that uh, the five men have been plotting for a long time, for weeks and months before January 6th, let me let you see exactly his words. He said the Capitol was the focus from the start, that they made it plain as day that they were there. It was not to see Donald Trump's speech. It was not to protect patriots. It was certainly not to protest peacefully. They were there to threaten and, if necessary, use force to stop the certification of the election. So, the defense has come out and said, look, you may not like what these defendants have said, because they've heard some of what the defendants have said. They've seen, you saw Dominique Pozzola. We just saw him. He was the one using the officer's shield to break into the Capitol, literally one of the first people to break through the window and then let everybody flood in. But they said, look, you, you may not like what they say. They may have said some things that are racist. They may have said some things that are sexist. And maybe that's who they are, but that doesn't make them seditious conspirators. And so that's been a little bit of the defense's plan here, but each of them have their own attorneys with their own defense. And that is why this case has gone on and on and on. But even in the interview that you did with Enrique Terrio two years ago, what mm -hmm. was it now? He acknowledged they should not have actually gone into the Capitol. Do you think that affects how this shakes out? It's interesting. Um, he was always very careful with his words when he was doing an interview with me or others, but then he would go online and there would be something very different. And they have used some of the things that he said online. But here's the conversation we had not long after some of his members had been already charged. He had not been charged. And here's what he said when I asked him what he thought about what happened at the Capitol and the role that the Proud Boys may have played. I'm not going to cry about a group of people that don't give a crap about their constituents. I'm not going to I'm not going to sympathize with them. They are doing the job that the people put them there to do, and if they don't like it, they can vote them out. They are still Americans. They are still human beings who felt that their lives were in danger. How can you not feel any sympathy or any empathy towards someone like that? I'm not going to worry about people that their only worry in life is to be reelected. So no sympathy, but he has said that he does not believe that people should have gone in. And by the way, he was not there. So mm -hmm. that'll be one of the things that defense used. He was not there on January 6th. He had been told not to come in because he had already been arrested for something else. A judge had told him to stay out of DC. That's where we are. Sarah Seidner, thank you very, very much. See you in an hour on yeah. CNN News Central. You will. Appreciate double duty today. <laughs> CNN This Morning continues right now. Let's finish this job. I know we can. Because this is the United States of America. There's nothing, simply nothing we cannot do if we do it together. There you go. Good morning, everyone. Top of the hour. We're glad you're with us here on CNN This Morning. So there you have it. He's running again. President Biden making it official this morning. Plus, the United States considering sending troops into Sudan to help evacuate Americans who are still stranded in the war-torn country. And on top of all of that, we are also now set to find out this summer if former President Trump is going to face criminal charges 
for trying to overturn the election results in Georgia. New reporting just into CNN on why it's taken this long. But we start this morning with President Biden officially announcing he is running for re-election, setting up a potential rematch with former President Trump. Biden launched his 2024 campaign just a short time ago with this video swiping at Republicans over abortion rights, book bans and attacks on democracy. Around the country, MAGA extremists are lining up to take on those bedrock freedoms, cutting Social Security that you paid for your entire life while cutting taxes for the very wealthy, dictating what health care decisions women can make, banning books and telling people who they can love, all while making it more difficult for you to be able to vote. When I ran for president four years ago, I said we're in a battle for the soul of America, and we still are. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead, we have more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer. I know what I want the answer to be, and I think you do too. This is not a time to be complacent. That's why I'm running for re-election. And this all comes on a really symbolic day for his announcement exactly four years ago today. Biden announced he was entering the 2020 presidential race. Let's talk about all of this with CNN senior political correspondent and anchor of Inside Politics Sunday, Abby Phillip. Morning. Hey, good morning. Look at that. Uh, side by it, side. It, yeah, it, it just really shows you how the presidency ages you. And I it's a lot. I was thinking that. Yeah. And remember when we saw the side by sides of Obama yeah. after yeah. his first term, right? Lots more gray hair. So let's just get to age then, right? Because that's like the elephant I mean, in the room. regardless of how old you are, that is a fact of the, of the job. So, yeah. But, I mean, it is an issue for this president. I don't think, though, that um, I think it's something the media loses a lot of sleep over. And obviously the poll numbers suggest that it, voters care about it to some extent. Yeah. Honestly, when, when you talk to people around Biden, they are not fixated on that. It, it's probably not viewed, you know, in the top five of the biggest challenges that they face. I mean, there are some bigger kind of almost existential ones. Like, for example, what's going to happen to the economy between now and next November? So they they feel like they have bigger problems to face and that this is an ongoing issue for them that that they think will not be as important to voters at the end of the day once they are faced Mm. with a clear choice. Well, I was just thinking, is that because he's likely running against another old guy? Or does the calculation change in the White House if it's DeSantis, for example? I think the calculation absolutely Mm -hmm. changes if it's a younger uh, opponent. Um, If it is Trump, they feel like they have a playbook, and they do to some extent, because in some ways Trump himself hasn't changed. It's not like Trump is kind of Trump 2.0. It's really more of the same there. Whereas if it's another candidate, if it's a Ron DeSantis, if it's someone, a Nikki Haley you know, someone else, it just poses a new set of challenges. Although I think you can see in that video that they put out this morning, uh, there's that little sneak sneak photo of uh, Trump and DeSantis kind of embracing. Mm. They, they plan to kind of lump all of these folks together. Yeah, they will. But when you talk to Biden people, I mean, I've heard from them, they definitely want Trump to be the nominee because yeah. they know what that rematch looks exactly. like, they think. They don't necessarily know what a DeSantis-Biden uh, head-to-head would look like. But a lot of this Biden announcement today also is about fundraising, because that is something 100%. that he has got to get started on. And I think that is part of why they were like, 
Is he going to do it now? Will he do it later this summer? And now they're deciding it today. Yeah, they, they've got to, this is going to be, uh, you know, the a billion dollar campaign, basically. And they have to start raising money now. That money does not grow on trees. So um, one of the interesting things about Joe Biden and President Biden is that he's been a pretty prolific fundraiser. And so they're getting that money spigot going right now. Uh, They're also using this as an opportunity, I think, to really put down a marker that uh, there isn't going to be a Democratic primary. I think that kind of became less likely after the midterms. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, you're going to start to see, I think, a rolling out of uh, more endorsements. There have already been plenty, but more endorsements just to say that this is a president who has his party united in this moment. Yeah. We'll see what that looks like. Stay with us, Abby. Don't go anywhere. Let's talk about this because we're set to find out. We now know this summer whether an Atlanta area prosecutor will criminally charge former President Trump in an election interference case there. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis announced yesterday she's making a decision and we'll know what it is sometime on indictments between July 11th and September the 1st. But this morning, we're learning about a few different matters that are delaying that announcement. The district attorney's office has picked up more cooperators and investigators, and they are pouring over the evidence that those people have been providing. There's also an ongoing court battle over legal representation for some of the fake electors. We're also now interested in cooperating in this probe. The DA's office also wants to give security partners enough time to plan. In a letter to local law enforcement agencies, Fonnie Willis writes, we want to ensure that our law enforcement community is ready to protect the public. We know her office has been investigating efforts by Trump and his allies to overturn the results of Georgia's 2020 presidential election. Trump has criticized this case. He's called it politically motivated. He was not named in her letter. Let's talk about what it means, what it could indicate. Chief law enforcement analyst uh, John Miller is with us, as well as CNN political commentator and former lieutenant governor uh, Jeff of Georgia, Jeff Duncan. And let me just start with you. I know you like to go by Jeff, so Jeff instead of lieutenant governor. (laughs) You, you were one of the, what is it, 75 witnesses who spoke to this grand jury. So you were in the room. We weren't. What do you make of this letter? Well, it was a very serious process, right? I certainly never sat in front of a grand jury before, but it was a very you know, sobering process to go through. Uh, I, I read the letter as, as the, the investigation is continuing to intensify. Uh, they're continuing to obviously get more and more witnesses to, to talk to, but also to cooperate. You know, I think one of the things that was eye-opening to me at real time, when this was playing out during the post-election period, how brazen Donald Trump was, right? Just to be talking to a state senator, just a simple state senator, and to hear that they had had a conversation with the president the night before or had received a text message. It's going to take a lot of time to continue to connect those dots, and I think that's what's going on here. And Judd, what do you make of this idea, what we're seeing here with this letter, this announcement, in such advance of what could actually happen? Mm -hmm. We don't know that it'll be Trump, but the assumption that everyone makes, including people like me, is that it could be Trump. And that's why she's giving such a heads up to law enforcement. Is that helpful to law enforcement? What about broadcasting it, you know, to potentially nefarious actors? Does it potentially hurt? Well, that's such an interesting question, because, I mean, in this bizarre world we live in, we've already seen a Trump indictment, you know, in a criminal court in New and York City. talked about that and teased it in advance. Exactly. Um, and, you know, we saw a crowd, but we didn't see an overwhelming crowd. The, the difference between doing that in New York, where there is a, a 34,000 person police department where they can call in almost bottomless resources as needed, um, and doing this in a county in Georgia, um, even though it's a, a large one, is something that she's putting her finger on, which is, 
I want you, the sheriff, to be thinking not a week before, but you know, this is when it's coming, somewhere between July and September. I want you to be planning, because this may be bigger than your department. So where's the Georgia State Patrol? Are they in your plan? What about the next county over? What about the local police departments? What's the mutual aid? Um, because in the post-January 6th world, frankly, uh, law enforcement agencies think of an event like this differently. It does seem also to me like the preparedness is a deterrent in some ways. I mean, we were expecting or preparing, law enforcement was preparing uh, during the indictment in New York for potential counter-protests that just never materialized. Yeah. And, and Trump almost explicitly called for it. But I think that in some ways, it's, they probably view it as it's better to be prepared and to let these folks know, we'll be ready for you, rather than to not be prepared and, and you know, wishful thinking that they just won't show up. That's important in the context of Trump, because I don't think you can rule out the incitement. He's already shown multiple times mm -hmm. that he's willing to do that, go right up to the edge um, rhetorically in moments like this to push back on these investigations. I think the emotions are higher yeah. here, too. It's not, did you pay off a porn star? Right. It's, uh, it's about the election. It's about the process. It's about things that the uh, Trump followers... Um, uh, and, I mean, we just watched on this broadcast a few minutes ago a story about the Proud Boys and, you know, their commitment and their, their lean towards, towards uh, disorder. Mm -hmm. uh, it's got to be front of mind. Yeah. Right. And potential racketeering charges as well. Whole, sort of a whole different ballgame. not just one defendant, right? Yeah, many. I mean, this, this, this could be a number of people. Uh, so emotionally, it's going to press more buttons. Um, Jeff, you know, let, let's... Let's say August, okay, for argument's sake. That falls right in, her, in the middle of her window. Well, by the way, that's also the first Republican presidential debate. So it's in a much more heated time politically. What do you make of that and how it may alter, by the way, how the president, former president, responds to this if he tries to get in front of it like he did here in New York? Yeah, I think what we're facing is potentially another Republican perfect storm forming off the beach of mm. Republican beach, right? It's... It's uh, all the components are coming together. I mean, the, the swing and miss by Alvin Bragg, in my opinion, uh, was one that emboldened uh, Donald Trump. It helped his fundraising. It certainly helped his popularity amongst those core conservatives or core Republicans or MAGA folks. Uh, and we watched this continue to steamroll with him gaining momentum in the Republican primary. But the perfect <coughs> storm for us conservatives that actually want to make a difference and make policy decisions forward-looking better than Joe Biden's using conservative strategies is that Donald Trump is really the only Republican that Joe Biden can beat. Right? Joe Biden's record, Joe Biden's approval ratings, Joe Biden's everything should get beaten by a Republican, with one exception, if that Republican ends up being Donald Trump. And I see that as the perfect storm. Jeff, is your sense from this letter that it is uh, likely a Trump indictment? You know, look, I think definitely reading between the lines, it sounds like, you know, there's going to be some serious reaction. That's what Fonnie Willis is. So, yes, I do think that there probably is going to end up being a Trump uh, indictment. But also, I think there's, you know, look, there's a lot of other important people that are in the crosshairs here. I mean, there's a current lieutenant governor that replaced me. There's sitting center state senators. There's the, uh, the head of the Republican Party. I mean, there's additional, you know, key individuals that were part of this fake electorate slate that were part of a lot of this conspiracy theories and fanning the flames. Um, there's going to be a lot of a lot of folks, I think, really called into question in this process. Mm -hmm. oh, Jeff Duncan, thank you. John Miller, Abby Phillip, thank you both very much. Also this morning, these are new images that we are getting here first on CNN of American diplomats after U.S. Special Forces evacuated them from war-torn Sudan. You can see just how grateful 
these embraces are. This is a photo of the ambassador shaking hands with the commander at the U.S. military base in Djibouti. That is following the rescue operation. The United States announced a three-day ceasefire that it helped broker between the two warring militaries. But CNN journalists have already heard the sound of gunfire and fighter jets despite that truce. We're also now learning the U.S. is deploying warships, possibly troops, to Sudan to help evacuate Americans who are still stranded there. Also this, Tucker Carlson out at Fox News. A surprising announcement yesterday will be joined by a former Fox contributor who left the network because of how Tucker covered January 6th. We'll get his take on what could have gone down behind the scenes. Also on top of all of that, jury selection begins today in columnist E. Jean Carroll's lawsuit against former President Trump. How the trial could play out, we'll tell you next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We do have really fascinating new reporting this morning about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and his previously undisclosed ties to a GOP mega donor. Thomas said he thought he didn't have to disclose major gifts from Harlan Crow because Crow didn't have any business before the Supreme Court. Well, now we're learning that a company related to Crow did ask the high court in 2004 to take up a dispute related to a copyright architectural drawing. Bloomberg News first reported the case and the relationship to Crow. So let's go to our senior Supreme Court analyst, John Biskupic, who joins us now. I, 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 did they take up the case? And just regardless, to have this request for to grant cert is significant. That's right. Poppy, they did not take up the case. They get, you know, they get literally hundreds and hundreds of cases each year, appeals uh, asking the high court to hear cases, and they did not take up this one. So on the surface, it doesn't look as serious as potentially other conflicts of interest. But the point is, we do not know. This is yet another example of the media finding out about a financial connection between, you know, a, a big Republican mega donor, someone who Clarence Thomas had taken these lavish trips with. He said he, that um, uh, Harlan Crow had not had any business before the Supreme Court. Bloomberg discovers that he does. And we've double checked that indeed this case did come to the court. The court rejected it out of hand. But Clarence Thomas did not disclose any kind of relationship, did not recuse himself from it. The party, the other party, the opposing party, didn't know about it. The media didn't know about it. Again, it might not be a super significant deal, but in the whole, what it does is reinforce the fact that the Supreme Court itself is not fully disclosing financial right. relationships and potential conflicts of interest at a time when it's getting more media scrutiny. Members of Congress are saying, why don't you have any kind of f formal ethics code? You right. can't police yourself. And that's what it all adds up to, Poppy, is just yet again, the appearance of potential conflicts at the court that is the last word on all the law in America, it really matters what the Supreme Court says. Right, and that's why, you know, Congress, Dick Durbin, going to Chief Justice John Roberts and asking for more transparency was all but right. just, you know, ignored. Yeah. Um, Joan, thanks very, very much for that reporting. Yeah, it will be so interesting to see what Capitol Hill says about that. Also this morning, something that is reverberating around Capitol Hill, Tucker Carlson is out at Fox News. The network saying in a statement, quote, we thank him for his service to the network as a host, and prior to that, as a contributor, that was it. The surprise announcement coming just a week after Fox News settled a defamation lawsuit with Dominion Voting Systems for more than three quarters of a billion dollars. That lawsuit revealed text between Carlson and staffers where he said that he hated former President Trump despite saying other things on air. Text also showing him making disparaging comments about Fox executives. 
Joining us now on this is CNN seniors, senior media reporter Oliver Darcy and CNN political commentator Jonah Goldberg, who we should note left Fox News after being there for 12 years when Carlson said that January 6th was a false flag operation. Thank you both for being here. And, and Oliver, I think the question this morning that even Tucker may be asking himself is, why? Why now? Yeah, why is the big question? And that's just unclear, to be honest, at this point in time. I think it's impossible to disconnect the decision for Fox News from the Big Dominion settlement last week. I mean, that was a massive settlement, $787.5 million they had to pay out to Dominion. It's, it's unclear exactly the, what part of that lawsuit, I think, factored into Carlson's ultimate firing at Fox News. There are a number of factors that could have factored in, but it's unclear exactly what was his undoing as related to that lawsuit. But we should keep in mind that the Murdochs had stood by Carlson through everything. I mean, he made white nationalist remarks on Fox News. They stood by him. He made anti-immigrant remarks. They stood by him. He promoted conspiracy theories about the COVID vaccines. They stood by him. He promoted conspiracy theories and trutherism about the January 6th attack. They stood by him. He sowed doubt about the 2020 election, and they stood by him. So something changed in their calculus, and it, perhaps it was just that the risk versus the reward calculation ha had altered, and, and he was just costing them too much problems and not offering enough reward, and they just decided maybe to just wipe their hands clean. Yeah. Jonah, I mean, as someone who didn't stand by him, right, you, you know, you've known him for 12 years. You, worked at, you, you were a contributor there to Fox News. I wonder what you think the final straw could have been. Yeah, just to be clear, I knew Tucker. I've known Tucker for 25 years. I mean, I, I knew Double him long before he went to Fox News. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, but regardless... Look, I, I think Oliver's right. I think that it's still kind of opaque and murky about what, you know, there's a reason why we call the last straw the last straw, because normally straws don't break camel's backs, right? Um, but it's all the stuff prior to the straw that makes it the decisive factor. I do think that there's, um, you know, the LA Times, where I write a column, there's a, there, there, apparently it's the Abby Grossberg tapes or the Abby Grossberg lawsuit, something about that is a big part of the decision. And also something about uh, the Ray Epps episode on 60 Minutes, which mm. sort of debunked Tucker's false flag mm -hmm. operation stuff. And I, I think that one of the things that a lot of people don't understand is that Tucker's shtick, where he called January 6th this false flag thing, where he leans into all these conspiracy theories, that's actually related to the Dominion suit in a, in a sort of weird way. And so far as that whole idea of respecting the audience, if you follow that logic, where you say, well, we should tell the audience what it wants to hear. Well, why go half-assed with that? Go all in, right? And that's what Tucker did, is rather than just say, oh, maybe there's something to this Dominion thing, he said, no, 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 no. These deplorable people who stormed the Capitol, they're actually heroes and victims and martyrs. And he, gave, he really force-fed and pandered to the audience what he thought it wanted to hear, not just this sort of half-measure, you know, let's say Trump has got something going, maybe, maybe onto something with his Dominion stuff. He said, no, 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 let's take the worst things about Trump and January 6th and turn them into positives for us, because that's what the audience really wants to hear. And the thing about that is it's a really big audience, Oliver. I mean, he was one of the highest rated anchors that they had. And I think that's why, you know, it's the front page of The New York Times and The Washington Post. It was your A1 in your newsletter. And so the question is, what does that look like going forward? Because... Obviously, I've heard from people in Trump world, they're stunned by this. He was a big, you know, any conservative, if you wanted to be a successful Republican, you had to go on his show, essentially, people felt. I think there are two questions about what's next. What's next for Fox News and what's next for the 
uh, Republican Party moving forward. For Fox News. What does it mean for the Republican Party, I think? Well, I, I think for the Republican Party, you had Tucker Carlson, who really shaped the modern day GOP, and he pushed it to the extremes. I mean, Tucker Carlson was not your average conservative. He made Sean Hannity looked fairly moderate on a lot of positions. He was an extremist, and he whipped the Republican Party in that direction. And so without him doing that, without GOP lawmakers fearing that if they didn't say the right thing, that Tucker Carlson would go on his 8 p.m. primetime perch and lash out at them, I think that, you know, really, it, it, it doesn't, we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I think this is going to change the GOP in some way. And I think for Fox News, they have some problems as well, potentially, if Tucker Carlson decides to go somewhere else. They were really worried after uh, the 2020 election about losing an audience to the smaller competitors like Newsmax if Tucker Carlson somehow turns up on one of those channels or does his own thing. It's not, I mean, it would not be you know, unheard of that a significant chunk of his audience could follow him. So I think those are the two things I'm watching right now. Uh, Jonah, someone who's known Tucker for 25 years and worked at Fox for 12, <laughs> do you, I mean... I, no world in which this is the end of Tucker Carlson in the, you know, in, in the in the public eye on some media platform, maybe his own. Yeah, I think there's a very real possibility he goes full Joe Rogan, creates his own thing. Um, then he gets to do things on his terms. Uh, he will definitely want to get the last word or at least get his version of events. He may be he may be in need of lawyering up right now because of the Grossberg stuff. Who knows? But I, I think it's absolutely true. We haven't seen the last of Car Tucker Carlson. I do think it's important, you know, on this Republican Party question, mm -hmm. you know, recall that Ron DeSantis, one of the first missteps he had yep. um, was he, he felt compelled to fill out Tucker Carlson's uh, campaign questionnaire. And that's where he called, you know, the Ukraine stuff a border right. dispute. None of these candidates, no GOP people are going to feel compelled to fill out whoever replaces Tucker, his questionnaire. Yeah, that's such a good point, Jonah, because it, it does show just the impact that he had that what they did was they just reached out to all these candidates to ask for their position on Ukraine and then read them live on air, basically. Well, a lot that of them didn't do it. A, a major, yeah. yeah, and then they later retroactively did. A major moment for DeSantis there. Uh, we'll see what the impact of this looks like going forward. Jonah Goldberg, Oliver Darcy, thank you both. Well, today, uh, jury selection begins in E. Jean Carroll's defamation case against former President Donald Trump. The columnist is accusing him of raping her in the mid-90s. She says that he forced himself on her in a Bergdorf Goodman's dressing room. The president denies that. It is a civil trial, so jail time not on the table, but Carol is suing former President Trump for unspecified damages. Her accusations are of battery and defamation, both of which Trump denies. And while Carol plans to attend the trial, indications are that Trump will not. We'll keep following that. Also this morning, President Biden, as we have noted, officially announcing that he is running for re-election. We'll talk about the timing, the challenges. What does a 2024 race for him look like ahead with one of his closest confidants in Washington? Senator Chris Coons is here live next. When I ran for president four years ago, I said we were in a battle for the soul of America, and we still are. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead, we have more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer. I know what I want the answer to be, and I think you do, too. There it is. New video announcement from President Biden this morning that he is officially running for a second term. His advisors moving quickly to finalize staffing and operational details for his reelection campaign. Today begins a 19-month effort 
to convince the public of his accomplishments and his ability to serve well into his 80s. So let's bring in uh, not only Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, but also a very close friend and ally of President Biden. He's also a member of the Foreign Relations and Judiciary Committee. So we're going to talk about Sudan in a moment. But good morning. You're smiling. You're happy. You liked the video. But what about the skeptics? What about the polling over the weekend that shows that 51 percent of Democrats don't think he should run and half of them are worried about how old he is? What do you say to them? Poppy, great to be on with you. This is a great morning, and I am optimistic about the 2024 election. President Biden himself often says, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And I'll just briefly compare him to the alternative. President Trump talked about rebuilding our infrastructure. President Biden has actually gotten it done, passed a record bill to invest in rebuilding our infrastructure, a bipartisan bill. President Trump talked about cutting prescription drug prices. President Biden has actually gotten it done, signing into law a bill that will reduce prescription drug prices for millions of Americans. Across a dozen different topics, strengthening manufacturing, dealing with gun background checks, strengthening our position in the world, investing in community mental health, things that his predecessor merely talked about, Mm -hmm. President Biden working with bipartisan groups in the Congress has gotten done. We have the lowest unemployment in 50 years. The private sector's created a record 12 million jobs in his first two years as president. I think when folks look at President Biden and his strong record compared to the alternative, they will vote for him. And the polls show that and show that strongly. How are you so sure the alternative is former President Trump? We don't even know what Governor Ron DeSantis is going to do. That's right. We don't yet know how the Republican primaries will play out. But virtually every poll of the Republican primary electorate um, shows that President, former President Trump still has a commanding lead in their primaries. Uh, and frankly, President Trump in the campaign mm-hmm. in 2016 showed himself to be a very capable, aggressive, agile, combative uh, primary competitor. So uh, I, I, I'll be very interested to see how Governor DeSantis does in the face of the withering personal attacks that we huh. can expect. Look, I share the lack of enthusiasm of many Americans uh, for a slugfest. I would rather I would only get to talk about the accomplishments of the last two Uh years. But I think we are stronger abroad and safer and stronger at home. Mm. And I thought the introductory video featured not just President Biden's beautiful Catholic school penmanship, but the visuals (laughs) that remind us of how much better off we are two years later. I noticed the writing as well. But I remember after the midterms when you noted, you talked about, and Biden himself said in March of 2020, talking about carrying the torch forward for the next generation. If it is a Governor DeSantis, who, by the way, wasn't that far behind Trump in the polling over the weekend, right? He was a lot further ahead than other Republicans who are already in this race. Does that make it more difficult for this White House and Biden to be up against someone so much younger? Well, Governor DeSantis has spent a lot of his time fighting culture wars, focusing on issues that fire up the far right base of the MAGA Republican Party, Mm -hmm. uh, but that I'm not sure will succeed in helping him win over skeptical, independent suburban Mm -hmm. voters. 
I'll remind you, um, cases in front of the Supreme Court about access to reproductive services just in the last few weeks mm -hmm. will re-engage uh, millions of Americans in the debate about how much individual liberty, how much freedom do they believe they deserve. There's a reason President Biden chose freedom as the theme of his introductory video for the 2024 reelection. Yeah, Kate he has been focused on creating real opportunity for America's middle class and reminding us of the freedoms that are at risk and the importance of fighting to retain our freedoms, yeah. both home and abroad. Caitlin just did a really interesting interview with uh, Governor Asa Hutchinson, who's running for the Republican ticket. Um, about abortion and if these positions are, um, are are strong ones for Republicans to run on. He said, yes, let's turn. You're on foreign relations. You've been warning about Sudan, writing about this issue for a long, long time. You're very concerned that what we see now could become a full-blown civil war in Sudan. Um, I reread this op-ed you wrote, Senator, last year on foreign policy. And at that time, you said, sanctions on the coup leaders and their networks will disrupt the military's revenue streams and their grip on power, creating an opening for the nation's nascent democracy to grow. Um, just yesterday on the show, we asked John Kirby at the White House about sanctions. And he said, we have a lot of tools at our disposal. We're working our way through right now. Should the Biden administration act now, put sanctions in place now? Well, Poppy, I think this is one of the different tools that we should be um, presenting to the competing military leaders of Sudan, uh, both General Burhan and General Hamedi, who are currently tearing their country apart um, in a brutal and unjustified civil war. Um, we have offered in the past sustained both development assistance and humanitarian assistance. Obviously, the other side of our toolkit is these targeted sanctions. Um, I hope that the current ceasefire will hold and that along with our uh, development partners, our security partners, other countries from uh, Europe and the region, we will be able to finish evacuating uh, those who want to leave the country. But frankly, more importantly, it's my hope that the determined work of our diplomats mm -hmm. and some regional leaders will produce an enduring ceasefire and then allow a negotiated renewal of the movement towards uh, a civilian government. If that doesn't happen, yes, I think sanctions are appropriate. You do think sanctions in the near term? In the near term, okay. because frankly, they're squandering their chance at peace. Okay. And this is a country that deserves, because yeah. of so much civilian, civic leadership yeah. towards development and democracy, they deserve peace. 30 years of a brutal dictatorship. They were on the state sponsor of terrorism list. Just before you go, to your point about evacuations, because we do have this new reporting from our colleague Sam Kiley in Djibouti, that the U.S. is considering a plan to send U.S. troops to Port Sudan to help evacuate U.S. citizens. This has been a complaint of many U.S. citizens there, some who are dual nationals, some who are not, including one whose sister-in-law we heard from on the program yesterday. This woman is a teacher in Sudan. She's stuck there with her 18-month-old baby. So my question to you is, do you think the U.S. should do that, should send troops in the port of Sudan and help those people get out? Well, let's be clear. Um, what you were describing was to Port Sudan, um, which is on the Red Sea, which is a long way from the active fighting in Khartoum. Yes. If we can safely facilitate the evacuation of civilian U.S. dual nationals, we should. But a large-scale military operation out of the center of Khartoum in the airport there, um, my assessment is that that's not safe at this moment. Okay. We'll keep following because we also know two U.S. warships are being deployed, uh, deployed toward the, the port of Sudan right now. Senator Coons, I really appreciate you coming on CNN this morning. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks. Caitlin.
Yeah, notable comments there, especially as the U.S. Embassy in Khartoum is still saying that the evacuation of private citizens is not safe at this moment. We'll continue to follow that. Also, here in the United States, North Dakota has just passed a near total ban on abortion. It has no exception for race, no exception for incest. The response that we're seeing nationally to that ahead, plus a horrific car crash in Chicago after two teenagers allegedly stole a car that led to the death of a baby. There is growing outrage this morning over the charges they're facing and whether or not it's enough. Here are five things to start your day this morning. President Biden, number one, officially announcing he is running for re-election. That means we could see a Biden-Trump rematch in 2024. Also in Georgia, the Fulton County District Attorney says she will announce charging decisions involving former President Trump this summer. For the last two years, Fonnie Willis has led a criminal investigation into alleged mismeddling in Georgia's 2020 election results. We'll see if there is an indictment of the former president. Also in North Dakota, the governor there signing a law banning most abortions in the state. Exceptions include saving the life or the health of the mother, but rape, incest victims could only get the procedure if the pregnancy is detected in the first six weeks. Also, as we just talked about, CNN is learning the United States is considering sending troops to Sudan to help evacuate Americans who are still stranded in that war-torn country. All right, and from Town to the Big Apple, the New York Jets have now acquired quarterback Aaron Rodgers from the Packers in a blockbuster deal. He won't be wearing number 12, despite Joe Namath's blessing, but likely number eight, which is what he wore in college. Welcome to New York's newest resident. There you of go. Course, for more on these stories all day, they'll be here on CNN, also CNN.com. And don't forget to download the Five Things podcast every single morning. A Chicago family wants to see charges upgraded against two teenagers following a car crash that killed their baby. That is six-month-old Christian Yavidia, who died when a stolen car crashed into the truck that his mother was driving with him inside. Police say a 14-year-old boy and a 17-year-old stole the car involved in the crash. They each face one misdemeanor count of criminal trespassing. Adrian Broadus has the details. A six-month-old baby was killed in a car crash in Chicago after a stolen vehicle crashed into his family's pickup truck. The Cook County Medical Examiner's Office identified the six-month-old as Christian Uvita. According to CNN affiliate WLS, Sean Walker witnessed the crash and ran to help, performing CPR on the baby. I just wanted to try to do what I can to help the situation out and to help the mom. Last week, police say two teens ages 17 and 14 stole a car and took it reportedly for a joyride, according to affiliate WBBM. This surveillance video shows the speed the stolen car was driving at right before it hit the Uvita family's pickup truck. The family's truck then crashed into a tree. One adult and two other children were injured in the crash. The baby's family says they are heartbroken and now planning his funeral. The funeral director, he suggested that we put balloons because those will be the only balloons that he'll ever receive. Police say the investigation remains ongoing, but the two offenders have been charged with one misdemeanor count of criminal trespass to a vehicle. The charges does not fit the crime. My message is to the state's attorney to anybody else that has hands on this case. What are you looking at? What are you feeling? How about first degree murder? How about reckless homicide? The family and community activists are calling on the state's attorney general's office to upgrade them to a more severe charge.
it's like reliving the day all over again. And it just, it sends a message of, to us at least, truthfully, his life meant nothing. And we have reached out to the state's attorney, still waiting to hear back at this hour. Meanwhile, as you heard in that story, this family is devastated. They have received an overflow of support from people in the community on a GoFundMe page that was created. A spokesperson with the family says money from that GoFundMe will help with medical expenses because not only did the baby die, the child's mother and sisters were injured too. Poppy and Caitlin. Completely heartbreaking, heart-wrenching uh, story. Adrian, please keep us posted, okay? Also this morning, what began as a way to cope with her father's illness actually led a teenager to helping thousands of children nationwide in the end through reading. It's a really remarkable story. You'll want to hear it ahead. Plus, the older the star, the brighter it shines. We'll take a look at the lasting star power of Hollywood's legends and why audiences still can't get enough. And I've been looking for this all my life. Tom Cruise, as you can see him there, still playing Mission Impossible's Ethan Hunt, even decades later. A new survey actually shows that legendary actors like Tom Cruise and other Hollywood heavyweights still drawing the audiences to the movie theater even after all these years. CNN's Harry Enton has been tracking this, with, is here with this morning's number. Harry, you know, what about the new stars? I mean, what, do they attract the same kind of audience or is it only these guys? So this morning's number is one because of the top 20 movie theater draws just one actor under the age of 40, Chris Hemsworth. Good-looking guy right over there. And if we look at who the top drawers are, look at this. Tom Cruise is 60. The Rock is 50. Tom Hanks is 66. you got to go way down to get Hemsworth all the way down at 20. And what's so interesting to me about this is if we look who went to the movies in the last year, an average over the last two years, those aged 18 to 34, 70% of them went to at least one movie, while all adults just 49%. So the fact is, it's a lot of these younger audiences who are actually liking these older stars. And when it comes to older Americans dominating the field, so is that surprising given you know, what we see in the labor force at large? Are they at all connected? Yeah, I, I do think it is. You know, if we look at the median age of the labor force, look at this. In 1980, it was 35. In 2000, it was 39. In 2021, it was 42. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about Joe Biden announcing his presidential bid this morning. Look, on Inauguration Day 2025, Joe Biden would be 82. Donald Trump would be 78. Both would be the oldest at inauguration. So the fact is we're seeing it all over the place. Even Aaron Rodgers, right? Yeah, we're talking about everyone's age here. It's a, you know, guys, Aaron Rodgers is 40. For football, that's like 120. <laughs> In football years. You're just truly here. I got a few more days at 40. That's all I got left. Thank you. Thank you. And you're going to get acquired by the Jets as well. That would be nice. But then I'd have to leave you. We'll be right back. No, I'll come to your games. All right, Harriet, thank you. We'll be right back. For this morning moment, turning a page on cancer after 19-year-old Emily Batnagar's father was diagnosed with stage 4 thyroid cancer, she began a nonprofit book drive called For Love and Buttercup to put books into the hands of pediatric cancer patients. And since 2019, Emily has donated about 15,000 books to local pediatric hospitals. Her father, good news, cancer-free now, but that has not slowed down Emily's mission. You can find the link to the Amazon wish list on her Instagram account 
for love and buttercup. Good for you, Emily. Wow, 15,000 books. That's right? amazing. Right? Great inspiration. Yeah. Lovely news to end your morning on. All right, CNN News Central starts right now. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.